0: Welcome to the City of Plantations Podcast. I am Carrie Blanchard, Battalion Chief of Public Affairs for the Plantation Fire Department. Thank you for tuning in. Our podcast is designed to keep you up to date on all the latest happenings and activities in, about, and around the City of Plantation. On our episodes, we talk directly with the leaders, decision makers, and the movers and shakers who make the Plantation the great city that it is.
1: On this episode of the City of Plantations Podcast, Carrie and I are pleased to be joined by Rachel Garan, an RN who is also an epidemiologist and the infection control officer for the Memorial Healthcare System here in South Florida. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Rachel, we
0: appreciate you being here. Can you provide an overview of where we are now as compared to back in March with this whole pandemic? Sure.
2: So, South Florida, we are just over the peak of our highest surge of covid nineteen cases that we have experienced um ever. So we're about double what we saw in March, uh, and July twentieth was our highest peak right.
0: Yeah. I mean I, it's we've seen a resurgence of cases since the intended reopening of things in the state, the country. Is this the second wave that Dr. Fauci had spoke of, or is this caused by the reopening, or is it a mix of both?
2: It's definitely a mix of both. Um, We do have some reopening. We saw Memorial Day weekend, so the end of May, there was a lot of people going out and, and not social distancing, and that could have been a cause for now this second wave or even just a continuation of a first wave. So a lot of experts are saying that these peaks and valleys, it will all be related to just one wave, continuous wave.
1: So we're moving away from first wave, second wave, third wave terminology and looking at it more as a continuous process that's going to have peaks and valleys. Is that accurate? Correct.
2: So we can see that the community spread of COVID-19 has kind of caused this continuous peak and valley ebb and surge of cases, as well as some of our increased testing that we have all across our community, and then just the opening, reopening, people who have been slow to uptick on the masks that we're all wearing together in this room, um, people who are still getting together at maybe nightclubs and bars and those kind of closed area environments, or even the birthday parties, graduation parties, uh, funerals, unfortunately. Those have contributed to an increase of our community spread in South Florida.
1: Right. I know as a community and and even as a state and a country, we tend to be driven to focus on a lot of the negatives that are associated with our approach to managing COVID-19 and testing and for the most part, every area of this pandemic. But we are making progress. Can you expand on the type of progress that we are making in in our fight against COVID-19?
2: So unfortunately, we are not seeing the kind of progress that other countries have been able to sustain. The more time we have, we do have more treatments available that have been very, very helpful in our fight against the disease COVID-19. We're seeing some of our treatments, like remdesivir, Um, an antiviral treatment. We're seeing convalescent plasma, which is using the blood of people who have recovered from COVID to help treat currently infected COVID patients. And then some other types of high flow oxygenation, BiPAP types of ventilation that we can do before you get very, very critically ill and then intubated on a, a mechanical ventilator. Those treatments have been getting better from the first time COVID has appeared in Wuhan in Italy and now subsequently New York and South Florida.
1: Right. So I, I wanna I wanna expand on that real quick as far as the, the intubation into ventilators, because the news has really put a lot of emphasis on being on a ventilator and a shortage of ventilators. And my understanding, and I hope you can correct me if, <laughs> if I'm not accurate, is that in the beginning, we were very quick to put patients on ventilators in the treatment of this. And now we are learning that that's not an initial intervention, but more so an intervention as a last resort or towards the end of the rest of the treatment regimen not working. Is that accurate?
2: It is accurate. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that there is a finite number of resources throughout our community in South Florida, uh, be it human resources, intensivists, who physicians who work in an uh, intensive care unit, infectious disease physicians, our registered nurses, respiratory therapists. So that in combination with hospital beds, in combination with ventilators and other types of medical equipment that we just spoke about before, all of that has the potential to reach a capacity, right. which is why flattening the curve with all of our preventative measures is so important.
1: Right.
0: Okay, I just, here, let's talk about the controversial stuff. Hydroxychloroquine. What are your thoughts on that? We hear it on the news, and everybody's on two sides of the fence here. What's What are your thoughts on that?
2: Hydroxychloroquine is an FDA-approved therapy for many illnesses, including lupus and arthritis. They've used it for years for those things. It is not... A treatment that has been shown through the evidence-based practice to affect COVID-19 um, when given for that illness.
1: Right. Let's talk about vaccines because that's another conversation piece that seems to be very active in the news cycle. Do we have hope for a vaccine on the horizon? And and if so, what what role will that play? Will it, in your mind, will that be? Hey, everybody must be vaccinated or else, or uh will it just be voluntary in in individuals i mean and again i'm i know i'm asking you to hypothesize but just your thoughts
2: so i'm very excited because there is currently a, t- a two dose vaccine in phase 3 of clinical trials at the national institute of health so right now the trial is enrolling 30,000 volunteers at 89 different clinical research sites at areas that are hard hit from this virus Um, So they're going to be able to use our own community's epidemiological data to see those high-incidence areas emerging hot zones. So maybe our South Florida area will be picked for that site. Um, And then vaccines are an effective part of a strategy to fight against COVID, but it's only one strategy to fight against COVID. There's many of other behavioral modification things that we can do In concert with a vaccine, which would require a large uptick of of taking the vaccine in our community. Right. Getting the flu vaccine would help stop COVID. Right. So we wanna make sure people get their flu vaccine and potential COVID vaccine when it comes out.
1: Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we field a lot of questions, both internally from our personnel in the fire department and various employees throughout the city. Uh, As well as externally. And the conversation always is, well, you know, I I read that um, the masks aren't effective or they are effective. Social distancing isn't effective or it is effective. And there's always debates about these things. But if I understood your answer correctly, even with a vaccine, even with a solid treatment regimen, even with all of that, there are still some behavioral modifications that we need to make. And those would be what?
2: Wearing a mask first and foremost, is one of the best things any person can do to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wearing a mask covers your secretions, so me talking in front of a a room full of people automatically just stops any spittle that we've seen people have before, uh, and that can help prevent COVID-19. The second thing is avoiding large crowds of people avoiding closed rooms and spaces with a lot of people. Also, we don't like to say social distancing anymore because of the stigma of not being in, in touch with your loved ones and your friends. So, physical distancing is so important mm-hmm. to keep that 6 feet away and then being outside if you can as opposed to in a in a small closed room. Right. And then hand washing. Hand washing is something easy we can all do. Um, It's not the gloves that you saw people wearing in in February and March because we know gloves have the tendency people touch everything and then that um, passes the cross-contamination. So as soon as we wash our hands, either with soap and water or alcohol-based hand sanitizer, that is a quick kill of any kind of bacteria and viruses on our hands and that stops the chain of transmission.
1: Right. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but I'm amazed that it took COVID-19 for us to realize that hand-washing and that level of personal hygiene was important. And it, regardless of COVID-19, right, it's always been important. So the fact that it's emphasized now, and there are so many people who this is maybe a newer concept is always kind of surprising to me. But yeah, so as a very social society in the United States, there's going to be a learning curve because if... All the experts are correct. This is a long- term situation that that we'll be working to remedy, right?
2: Yes, and with our working closely with our partners at the Health department, so our communities all across the country, and especially in South Florida to ramp up our testing, our fast access to testing, with fast turnaround times, um, and then the contact tracing that comes along with it, people doing their part to furlough, quarantine, don't go out if you're sick is one of the biggest things that we need to continue messaging. If you were potentially exposed to somebody with COVID exposed to somebody with the flu, you would want to stay home. So, so you're not spreading that along.
1: Right. Excellent. So shifting gears a little bit, but along with what we're discussing, Dr. Fauci said that the COVID-19 is going to be with us potentially for a very long time. In your opinion, what do you believe are the short and long term prognosis for this for this virus? And I guess specifically, will this become seasonal eventually like the flu is?
2: So it could be. We don't know. OK, that's that. That's the biggest issue with these new viruses. It could definitely become like other coronaviruses, which is the common cold mm-hmm. and become cyclical like the flu. Um, it could become less and less virulent or strong and and kind of peter out. So it is just kind of like the common cold. So we need to have more research done on this virus to culture it, to see how long it lives, because the more research that's coming out, the more we're changing our protocols. So we've seen that in the past. We've changed our stance on masks. And now throughout the rest of the world, we've seen that that actually is an effective way to prevent COVID-19. Um, the same thing is is now we're changing our protocols with discontinuation of, of precautions, letting people go out back into the world at 10 days before we thought it was a longer time because people keep testing positive. But we're seeing through all of the research we're doing that it's really only about 10 days you're infectious.
1: And that, so that's really the reason why the CDC shifted a little bit, depending on your status, like healthcare providers are addressed a little bit differently by the CDC as well as first responders. But for the the rest of the population, the CDC has shifted a little bit away from a testing-based regimen for return to work or returning to normal interaction to a symptomology-based, right?
2: Correct. So that's what I was referring to. And it's very similar to what we do for the flu or to other types of respiratory viruses. So we count about approximately an X number of days after your first symptoms. So for COVID, they're saying it's about 10 to 20 days, depending on the severity of your illness and some of your other personal risk factors.
1: Like being immunocompromised, which we've talked about before. Yep. Yeah, okay. And then um, asymptomatic people, are they presenting a little bit of a challenge? Because where do they fit in? So we, we talk a lot about immunocompromised, the severity of your symptoms, But then we kind of have to segue to talk about individuals who are asymptomatic, and it seems that that category hasn't really changed with the CDC's recommendations.
2: So that's another one where we're still learning and more research needs to come about. So we just have to err on the side of caution, which is another reason why we wear masks. We wash our hands all the time, and we care for our fellow human beings because we don't know who is asymptomatic, who is immunocompromised. So we treat everybody the best way we can. The golden rule. Right. Excellent.
0: (laughs) I know there might not be enough information yet. I know this is all new, but is it possible to get reinfected?
2: That's an amazing question. And that's still one we have to wait for the research to see. They're saying uh, we should be looking at like a 90-day or three-month time period to see if we should be retesting people to see if it's a new test, a new test, a new illness. Either way, we would want to look for new onsets of symptoms and not just the test, a new test coming on.
1: We didn't discuss this question beforehand, but I kind of want to throw it out there. And if you don't want to answer it, I understand. But we we went the way of antibody testing pretty hard in towards the beginning of this. And then we moved away from antibody testing. Can you explain that a little bit to our listeners, how that worked out?
2: Antibody testing is an important role in in learning about COVID-19, and that's exactly what it is. We're learning more about it. So with the antibodies, some people might develop antibodies, and that's good. They're seeing that you could have it for about three months, and that's the reinfection question that we just answered. Other people might not develop antibodies at all. We don't know why that is. So because of that, we can't really tell if the antibody test just wasn't a good test, didn't pick up your antibodies, or you didn't actually make antibodies, and then what that means. So it's just hard to tell what the antibody test will do for us yet.
1: Right. But we're still in a place where the PCR test or the, I guess for our listeners, the, the viral, the actual viral test, is still what we're using to diagnose as opposed to the antibody test, which would be used more for collecting data or maybe confirming, the PCR test. Is that accurate?
2: Yes. So the uh, viral PCR test, that's the one that people will get most likely all the way to the back of their nose. That will detect how much virus is in your body. There's some new tests, the antigen tests that are now being done at the hard rock. Um, Those will also detect how much virus is in your body, but you do need a lot of virus at that point, which is why they're encouraging only symptomatic people to get that test at those sites. Oh, makes sense.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Besides individuals not wearing masks and not social distancing and maybe not washing their hands as much as they should, what do you think are some other factors that continue to create viral spread?
2: One of the reasons is testing. If we don't have accurate, efficient, fast testing with fast turnaround times, we can't get that information back into the hands of the people who went to get tested, which means those people can't do a lot of the behavior modifications we talked about. They can't; they they need to stop going out into the community. They need to stop going to work when they're sick. They need to isolate themselves so they don't spread the virus. If we do that, we can stop spreading the virus in this community. Awesome. Here we are, like
0: months later, and I guess here we're school starting. What are your thoughts on schools opening? I believe that schools are mostly going virtual, but some schools are going to school. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I have a lot of thoughts on that because not only am I a registered nurse, an epidemiologist, I'm a mother. So I have a seven-year-old and a, and a two-year-old. I'm helping with some of my kids' schools to come up with some of these answers, how we can do this safely. Right now, when there is a lot of community spread in this area, I can't see how we can open schools in person safely uh, to protect the most amount of people. And that's our job as public health professionals to to offer those advice to the people trying to plan how to go back to school. I do think it is possible. This is our new normal. We're learning every day how we can make this effective. But again, we need some of those things we were just talking about We need people to be wearing masks at all times can't be just mandatory we need a lot of hand washing opportunities we need space so be able to do distancing if possible and then we need the testing and what happens after the testing so we need people to stay home if they're sick to let us know the stigma attached to a positive covid Mm -hmm. diagnosis has to go away it just has to be part of our daily life i have covid My brother, my sister has COVID, so we're going to stay home, let people know so everybody else can react appropriately. Once that happens, we can definitely reopen schools.
1: And I think that's a really good point because one of the things that we saw when the CDC shifted from test-based return to work and to symptomology return to work is coworkers saying, well, hold on, if that person's still testing positive, I don't want to be around them. And that became a challenge because we had to then sit down and explain and really get do a deep dive into the CDC's reasoning behind that and educate people to reduce that fear. I think that's a great point related to schools. And the other good point I think you make that's amazing is it's not just about the precautions to minimize the spread of the virus in the schools if we went back to -to face-to-face. But it's also having that extremely robust infrastructure in place for what happens when we do get a spread of infection in a particular school throughout students and teachers and administrators. And I could be wrong. I don't feel we're 100 percent there in that infrastructure. What are your thoughts on that?
2: It would take everybody working together with the common goal of doing the right thing. So even on your not at school times, what your family does, wearing masks, washing hands, staying physically distant.
1: Awesome.
0: All right. Is there anything else? I mean, we're kind of at the end of this. Is there anything else that you wanted to add?
2: Just that stopping the spread of misinformation is one of my all-time favorite things to do. Um, It's it's a huge goal in public health now. We want to make sure that as many people as possible are, are spreading these messages that masks work hand-washing works, social, physical distancing absolutely works, and we can all work together to stop the spread of COVID-19.
0: All right, awesome. Rachel, thank you very much. We know that you're busy, so thank you for coming and educating and informing us. Thank we, you so much yeah, for having we appreciate me. appreciate you. Thanks. All right, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Remember, wash your hands, wear your mask, and stay safe, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to the City of Plantation podcast. We strive to bring you accurate and timely information. Please continue to tune in to our podcast episodes and also catch up with us on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, and Nextdoor. If you have questions, send them to Hall at plantation.org and we will answer your questions directly. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast and stay safe, everyone.